the VCA Voice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marie Curl. Our goal with the VCA Voice is to showcase how VCA Animal Hospitals is taking care of the future of veterinary medicine. We'll bring our purpose to life through meaningful conversations about care, our culture, and the communities we serve. On today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Zachary Wright. Zach is the Director of Oncology and the Medical Director at VCA Animal Diagnostic Clinic in Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Maria. I'm excited to be here. You know, I'm always interested in people's journeys in veterinary medicine, so I'd like to learn about your journey in veterinary medicine and also with VCA. You know, my journey is a little bit cliche. My mom tells a story when I was two, I didn't have a security blanket. I carried around a horse. I think that made them steer me to this profession, but I'm <laughs> grateful that they did. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really been the the only thing I've ever wanted or thought I was supposed to do. After undergrad, I applied to numerous vet schools, got into Texas A&M, which is our in-state tuition, thankfully. Um, during vet school is where I kind of got introduced to the idea of specialty medicine. I admittedly didn't know it existed. I thought I was going to be a mixed animal practitioner like the clinic that I grew up in, but I, I got really intrigued by specialty medicine. So did an internship at um, at West LA at VCA's flagship. And then from there, was really fortunate to have VCA support and, and was one of the first VCA-sponsored residents uh, in medical oncology. Went back to Texas A&M and finished up there. So after your uh, residency with the sponsored residency, you had a commitment to return to VCA. And, and what's happened with that and since then? Yeah, I did. So um, I remember that day, you know, Dr. Tams was at, uh, in your chair telling people where to go. And he called me up and said, hey, we'd like you to go to Albuquerque. You know, I was always from, I'm from Texas. I always thought I would be come back to Texas. And Albuquerque is close enough where I, I was comfortable giving that a shot. They wanted to really start an oncology practice in, in Albuquerque. And I was on board for that. And then we kind of signed the contract. And a month later, VCA purchased the clinic that I'm in now in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent about three and a half years in Albuquerque building a practice. And I was the intern director there for a few years. Mm-hmm. But Dallas has always been my home. And a series of events led Dallas to not having a boarded oncologist in the Metroplex when it came time for me to look at the opportunities to come back. And that was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Did you become medical director when you moved back to Dallas? What's it like to be a medical director in a large specialty hospital? That's a that's a great question. Every, every day, it's a different answer. I, I wasn't recruited for that position when I got here. I, I was a staff oncologist for a few years building that practice. And kind of as we grew and added five boarded oncologists in our practice, we developed a director of oncology position because there was a lot of us. Mm-hmm. I did that a couple of years and then stepped into the medical director role, I think about two and a half years ago. It's got some unique challenges. It's a lot of doctors. I think we're at 14 right now, and wow. we, we hope to grow that. But the fun part of this job is is helping the doctors who work here really advance the medicine. Kind of being their advocate to bring in new equipment and new ideas is one of the really rewarding parts of this job. spend most of our time today talking about veterinary oncology. You know, you talked about your journey and doing your internship and learning about specialty medicine. What is it that drew you to veterinary oncology? 
I didn't know specialty medicine existed when I stepped into a vet school. Mm -hmm. In my internship, I had realized at that point that specialty medicine was something I was interested in. So I was looking at oncology and surgery. And, uh, you know, my, my dad is a, is an oral pathologist, a uh, longtime faculty member at, at a dental school and has written some, some oral tumor books. Those are our coffee books in our house growing up. So <laughs> tumors were always kind of in the background of my life. Cancer research and exploration still has, has so much so much runway in front of it that to be a part of that exploration was really appealing to me. So what was it like doing an oncology residency? How, how long is a residency and was it an intensive training program? Generally, residencies uh, at this point are all pretty standard three years. Mine was manageable. I was the second oncology resident in that program at the time. And so I think we were all still kind of learning what that what that training looked like. But the day-to-day -day is seeing oncology patients and it's something I enjoy. And I, I learned how to be efficient, manage that, and, and, and also kind of teach some students along the way. Let's talk a little bit about cancer. What are, what are some common types of cancers in cats and dogs? And have you treated cancer in animals other than cats and dogs? You know, the big ones, uh, if you Google dog cancer, you're going to land on canine lymphoma. Um, that's probably true of cats as well, mm -hmm. um, and mast cell tumors. Those two diseases are really the bread and butter of a standard oncology practice. But mm -hmm. we we see a lot of soft tissue sarcomas, which are, I actually saw three of them this morning before wow. this podcast. And um, uh, osteosarcomas or primary bone tumors, really common one. I am a veterinarian, but I'm also a longtime owner of Golden Retrievers. So I think I'm on my sixth one. So wow. hemangiosarcoma or, uh, you know, a, a big cancer of the spleen uh, mm -hmm. is a big thing that we see. I wish we never saw it, but, but unfortunately it's out there. I think cats, a little bit different story. Again, lymphoma is pretty common. The, the big disease that we really worry about in cats is the oral squamous cell carcinoma. Cats in general, we, we are probably a 25% cat practice to a 75% dog practice. So mm -hmm. see a lot more cancers in dogs generally, at least in, in, in Texas. Somewhere along the line, I heard that mast cell tumor, it, it's, a, it's a very important tumor of dogs, but it doesn't occur in people. Was that true? My understanding is that the cutaneous versions are the skin diseases we don't really see in people. Mm -hmm. There are some internal, what we call mastocytosis conditions. Okay. Um, and some of the drug companies are focused uh, on treating both, but people don't get skin bumps caused by mast cell disease like they do in dogs and cats. What about treating cancers in other species? Have you had experience with that? Uh, a little bit. We're a small animal hospital. We don't have a barn or stocks, um, but horses get cancer. Uh, you know, sarcoids and melanomas, those are some common ones. And, mm -hmm. and every once in a while, um, I have some colleagues from vet school who are equine surgeons, and I get a phone call or a text message to get some, at least a consult uh, on those horses, especially the, the really high dollar horses that people are really invested in and in doing everything they can for, um, mm -hmm. but pretty rare. Um, when I was a resident, we treated a tiger, uh, had a squamous cell carcinoma <laughs> on its on its paw. I treated it from about 10 feet away, if I'm being honest. <laughs> right, it was, it was, as as uh, you do with a tiger. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, other than that, uh, nothing. We had a rabbit in our practice last week. Wasn't my patient, but but we can see some pocket pets from time to time, but mostly still just dogs and cats. So cancer is just a disease of older pets, right? I admittedly wish that was true. It definitely trends towards older. Um, you know, there's a lot of pretty walk around stats that, that people rely on that 50% of the dogs over the age of 10 are going to develop a cancer. 
the, the age to me is not a hindrance of, of what we're able to do for these animals. But we do see young animals on occasion. And as a general rule, that's a more concerning situation. You're not supposed to get cancer when you're a two or a three-year-old or frankly, a, a 20-week-old puppy. Those are, mm-hmm. those are unique situations and often mean a more aggressive situation, unfortunately. Can you give me some information about how cancer is diagnosed and treated? I know there's a lot of treatment variability with different types. So there's a variety of diagnostics that we can do. Number one, there's nothing that outweighs the benefits of a really thorough physical exam, right? And that Uh includes rectal exams and deep palpation of the neck and looking in the oral cavity, things like that. So that's where we start. One of the things I think our profession does really well is cytology, which is when we use that small gauge needle like a vaccine needle, a sample of mass. We look under the microscope. We don't get all of the details of what a biopsy tells us, but uh, it's a it's a really non-invasive, affordable, and, and for us, a very efficient way to get some of the answers that clients need to make these decisions for their pets. So we do a lot of needle cytology in our practice. Once we know what the tumor is, then the next question is, where is it? Or what we call staging. And practices are different, but we use a lot of the same diagnostic tools that human medicine does. We do a lot of lung x-rays. That's where a lot of our cancers are going to spread. We do a lot of abdominal ultrasounds because that gives us a lot more detail than x-rays do of the abdomen. So liver and the spleen and the kidneys and and internal lymph nodes, the ultrasound really helps us understand if the tumors are spreading to those. And then really as the technology is advancing and frankly becoming more affordable for our profession, we do advanced imaging like CAT scans and, and MRIs on occasion, particularly for our brain tumors. Uh, but we do more and more CAT scans. I think the piece that we miss, and, and it's a shame because they branded it so appropriately, is we're not quite as a profession to that PET scan phase, right? Which is um, mm. really what human oncology practices are now their standard of care. There's a lot of logistics that go into PET scans. There is radioactive components that need to be managed. Um, in terms of the patient uh, and and where those materials are made and how they're delivered. So I'm not sure that's something in the next three to five years for our profession, but hopefully we're going to be able to get over some of those hurdles and bring that diagnostic test to our profession too. So it sounds like the diagnostic testing that you do is really very similar or the same as in in people. So if you have a CT or an MRI, are those human diagnostic instruments or animal? There is a a CT in the market that is designed for animals, or at least it was in the market. I don't know how successful of a market share carved out, but most of these are human grade, you know, just kind of like their car wheel, admittedly, as a profession, often by the used CT or the used MRI when human hospitals have new technology that they want to upgrade to. That's been an affordable model for us. But again, the technology is really becoming more and more affordable in, in our hospitals, particularly our company, made an effort to invest more in getting the higher quality kind of new versions of these. So many of them are the equivalent of what are seen in human grade facilities. Are there different kinds of diagnostic and treatment modalities or is it all associated with delivering chemotherapy? I would say you break down cancer treatment in pets into five big categories. Again, when it Mm -hmm. comes to treatment, local disease or, or can we deal with that bump that we felt on physical exam? We use really surgery as our as our primary treatment option or prescription there. And then the other is radiation. Um, both of those are going to be a, a local therapy. 
We use chemotherapy to treat what we call systemically throughout the whole body. If we, or we are afraid a tumor has spread or has the high potential to spread, chemotherapy is what we're going to rely on. And then a part of that that's also systemic or treating the whole body is kind of the newer breakthrough of immunotherapy. So kind of mm-hmm. reprogramming the, the patient's immune system to help us attack that cancer. Those are how we treat the specific disease. But the other part of that is treating the patient. And, and so the last kind of bucket, if you will, is what we would consider palliative or hospice care. And I think that's all about treating patient symptoms. And again, really irrelevant often to the disease process itself. Tell me about some of the differences in use of chemotherapy and, and what happens in human health care versus how a veterinary oncologist approaches chemotherapy in that phase of treatment. Quality of life is really what drives all of our decisions. So when we give chemotherapy, just principally for for clients to understand, we are just much more conservative in the dosing. We are just giving less, even if these dogs weighed as much as you or I, right? Compared to a human medical oncologist, Mm -hmm. their treatment goals, their ethical treatment objectives are striving for cure. And we admittedly uh, often don't even attempt that, right? Our, Mm -hmm. Our goal is quality above everything. So when we're giving chemotherapy, it's a lot lower dose. The general rule for us is we believe that probably at least 90% of our patients are going to have minimal to easily treatable side effects that, you know, a routine anti-nausea medication or a routine anti-diarrheal, even over-the-counter Imodium really fixes what, what's ailing them pretty easily. Mm-hmm. The other tenet that I tell clients is you are always in charge. I'm never going to tell you to buck up and deal with this, right? So if your dog or cat does get sick from chemotherapy, then we have an obligation to do something different. And that means maybe we further lower the dose or we switch to a different drug or frankly, we stop. But we're never going to give a drug that we know makes our patients severely ill at each turn. That's just not how it works for us. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, assuming that most cancers are either suspected or diagnosed at a primary care level with the primary care family veterinarian, what does that partnership look like between a primary care veterinarian and you as a, as a specialist, as an oncologist? Well, I think your word partnership is the correct word. That That's my goal. The term for that is the triad of care, right? That it's mm-hmm. it's the client as the advocate of their of their pet. Um, it's the primary care veterinarian who's known that pet for most of its life and, to your point, often made that diagnosis. And then it's the oncologist or, or frankly, any specialist. I think these principles sh- should apply. And it works best when all three of us communicate continuously. So it's text messages and and emails thankfully we're we're done with the fax machines but however we have to however we have to communicate as long as we all continue to do that that's really the ideal scenario for me and and I personally rely a lot on our primary care referring colleagues to to do a, some of the aftercare those clinics are often around the corner from a client or on the way home from work we try to engage our our primary care partners as often as we can cuz helps keep them involved in that process so that they can understand what's happening to that pet through this journey. Can you tell me a little bit about the role of veterinary technicians in your oncology practice? I'd be happy to. They, they are the unsung heroes of our practice. They are the face of our practice. They are the ones dealing most of, most of the time with the pets. They are dealing with, with the clients most of the time. They are the ones who are, who are giving the chemotherapy to our patients, who are putting our patients under anesthesia for surgical procedures and for radiation therapy, and they do all of the hard work. And oncologists get get the credit, and it needs to be it needs to be the other way around, to be honest with you. 
my favorite part of, of watching the oncology technicians in our practice work is, you know, when a patient finishes chemotherapy or radiation, we have a graduation, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. people will ring the bell and and, and, and things we've seen on TV. But right. we, we have a graduation banner and we have a, a, a dress up closet, if you will, <laughs> in our <laughs> our staff um put top hats on bulldogs and feather boas or, you know, around Weimariners and all this. <laughs> and then we have kind of uh, graduation certificates and cards and everybody signs, <laughs> but to watch how much our staff um, really get into that and, and celebrate that with the families shows me that they're the right people to be, to be working uh, side by side with every day. change topic just a little bit. I know that you and and your hospital are really involved in clinical studies. And in a podcast in 2022, we heard from Phil Bergman and Talon McKee about our VCA clinical studies program. Why is it important for you and your team to contribute to science this way? Clinical trials is is a way to advance the science. More simplistically for me, you know, I, I like what I do. But there is a a routine to it. And clinical trials is a way to break up that routine because you don't know what's happening. That's kind of the the whole point, right, is we're trying to uncover the answers to these questions or the truths to these questions. And so it really makes my brain work in a way that's different than talking to a client about a disease process or talking to a veterinarian about a case they want to refer. It it makes me work differently. And I I get self-satisfaction out of that personally. So we do it for a lot of reasons. We really believe that these trials um, need to be funded by sponsors. If they want the answers to those questions, they have to pay for that. And that's Mm -hmm. okay with me because I can then tell these clients who may not be able to pursue some of these treatments that I have a fully funded trial and it's allowed us to to really help a lot of pets that potentially weren't able to pursue standard of therapy because of those financial hurdles. So it, it checks a lot of boxes for us in our practice. So another area I want to talk about is the VCA Pet Cancer Care Alliance. Can you share how that program evolved and what it is today? Sure. Um, really excited about this. So we'll talk about this as long as you want. Um, the Pet Cancer Care Alliance was kind of initially the marketing brainchild within VCA is a, is a way to kind of highlight the work that VCA oncologists were doing. And it, it had been kind of an idea for about six or seven years, it really started to, to become an, an actual entity about um, about five years ago. Mm-hmm. What it is now is it's a collection, um, essentially, we should view it as an advisory board, right? Um, but it's a collection of about 25 oncologists. We use that word to include surgical oncologists. Um, so surgeons who are boarded surgeons who have then done a surgical oncology fellowship, mm-hmm. um, as well as radiation oncologists and then medical oncologists. We have pathologists who we, we can't do our job without, without other veterinarians reading our samples and telling us what these are, right? So they need to be a part of that discussion. And some other ancillary specialists that, that help us do our job every day, like uh, radiologists and uh, as, an, as an example. So it's a collection of, of these specialists. And, and we now are tasked, uh, we have a kind of multi-pronged mission statement. And, and one of the things that we do is we want to raise the educational oncology floor within our company. So we're, mm-hmm. we're creating content that, that, is, that is useful for veterinary technicians and primary care veterinarians about basic oncology, diagnostics, and, and testing. We want to expand that to, to 
teach them more about the diseases and more importantly, what's new about this the diseases that we see every day. Mm-hmm. We also play a role in, in helping you, Marie, and in, in, in MedOps and in vetting all of these oncology breakthroughs. It's, it's mind-blowing how many companies are trying to move into the veterinary space. And, and your team, right, don't just have oncology. You have cardiology and internal medicine and all the things that you have to be cognizant about trying to move into our e- ecosystem. But the PCCA has taken that onus on oncology-specific products. Again, with this um, brain trust of, of boarded oncologists, we can evaluate those products, not just scientifically, but clinically, and as well as these companies' business acumen to make sure that they check all of those boxes to be brought into our hospitals because they've navigated that process the right way. The other thing we strive to do is really to create a community. We're trying to build that network where that any oncologist who joins this company has friends and colleagues that are available at the touch of a button or the, or the drop of a call, right? That, that we can all help each other when you see a unique case and trying to build that network. Because if we're all helping each other, then the quality of medicine is improving. When we're raising the quality of medicine within our company, then, then our clients and our patients are benefiting from that. So. The PCCA is ambitiously trying to tackle all of that. I think we're we're successful so far, but we, we've got bigger ambitions. We want to do a whole lot more. We're about at the end of our time, and I have two more questions. And, and the first is, what are you excited about in veterinary oncology in, in the future? What's what's coming for us? There's so many, it's, it's hard to keep track. I think I think realistically what we're heading for in, in all cancer therapy is personalized medicine, right? The next two dogs I see, even if, even if the pathologist says that their cancer is the same, it's not. There are genetic um, uniquenesses to, to every patient. And their tumor is, is a one of a kind. And I'll tell clients, I've seen this cancer a lot. I've never seen this cancer in your dog or cat before. So I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the role of personalized medicine where we can take that biopsy or, and we can do some genetic analysis, um, whether that's on the tumor or now even in blood, right, and figure out the specifics of that tumor. And then we have therapies that are specific to those genetic mutations. I, I think that's really where we're going to go. I I can't help but see how that's not more successful. Within my career, I expect every patient who comes to see me um, to, for me to say, I need to find out the specifics of your dog or cat's tumor, and then we're going to find a very specific treatment plan versus more of a one-step treats all approach. Well, and my final question is, if we have veterinary students or interns or recent grads listening to this that were considering a career in oncology, what advice would you give? I would tell you, it's the same time education commitment as any specialty, right? I think what I learned very quickly is it is so incredibly rewarding for you to have a client come in two years later and say, my dog doesn't have cancer anymore because of what you and your team did. It it is not a death and dying specialty, Uh, even though the word cancer is in what we do every single day. uh, There are so so many treatments and, and diagnostics available to us that we can really effectively extend so many animals' lives and improve their quality of life for a really significant period of time. But there's joy and satisfaction in that. That was the hurdle. Don't let it be. Well, Zach, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing such wonderful information. I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So I really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me, Marie. Marie. 
Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing. Don't forget to leave a review to let us know your thoughts and share the episode with friends. Follow VCA Animal Hospitals on social media at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more inspiring stories, visit our website at vcavoice.com. Thank you.